Tonight we begin in Matthew chapter 26. And there are some people who, when they arrange the Gospels or divide them up for purposes of analysis, they regard this, of course, this section that we enter into this evening, which is commonly called the Passion of Jesus Christ, the the direct events surrounding his betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion, his resurrection. I mean, this is the core information that's given to us in the Gospels. There's almost a sense in which everything else we've read in Matthew up to this point, which has been extensive, everything else we've read, in a sense, is introductory to this point. So now we begin, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. We have seen similar announcements, or if you want to say predictions, by Jesus of his upcoming betrayal and arrest and crucifixion. This isn't the first time we've read something like this in the Gospel of Matthew. What's unique about this statement is the opening in verse 1 where it says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. You see, in Matthew's gospel, the teaching of Jesus is now finished. In these last days leading up to his betrayal and crucifixion, he warned the multitudes about the corrupt religious leadership. He he spoke to his disciples about things to come. But now it was time for Jesus to fulfill his work on the cross. I like what Adam Clark said about this. He said, having instructed his disciples and the Jews by his discourses, edified them by his example, convinced them by his miracles, he now prepares to redeem them by his blood. In other words, the the work of Jesus performing miracles, the work of him giving attesting signs, the work of him teaching, the work of him confronting the religious leadership, there's a sense in which all that's finished now. Now the work is focused where it has been in general terms all along, but now specifically the work is focused on the work that the Son of God must do upon the cross. And that's why he says in verse 2, you know that after two days the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now please remember, In the previous section in this incredibly bold confrontation that he had with the religious leaders, or rather speaking to the crowd about the religious leaders, and then in that whole amazing prophetic discourse of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, and then the amazing stories about Jesus judging the world in Matthew chapter 25. I mean, figure that's just where we ended, Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus announced that he, the Son of Man, would judge the nations, that he would divide them between sheep and goats on the right hand and on the left. Perhaps the disciples would be tempted to think about that. Well, maybe he won't suffer and die as he said before. The same man who just told us all that he is going to sit as the sovereign judge over all humanity. This man, this man will not suffer and die a shameful death as he has previously indicated. But no, Jesus reminds them now, no, I will. Maybe they were strengthened in their idea that it was impossible that the Messiah should suffer. But Jesus reminded them that this was not the case and that he would be delivered up to be crucified. Verse 3. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. You see, the long controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders has finally come to this. Oh, they had murderous thoughts towards Jesus before, but now they set in motion murderous actions where they will actually assemble a plan, a plot, by which they can actually bring the Son of God to a death. According to D.A. Carson, the use of these two words, assembled and plotted, is deliberately suggestive of a psalm. Psalm 31, verse 13, which says this, For I am the slander of many, fear is on every side, while they take counsel together against me, they scheme to take away my life. And that is exactly what these religious leaders were doing in reference to Jesus. They were led, verse 3 tells us, by the high priest who was called Caiaphas. 
Now, it's interesting because in other places in the gospel, it attributes the high priesthood to a man named Annas at the same time. We know that Caiaphas was the official high priest, yet he often related and and yielded to the authority of his father-in-law, Annas. Very interesting. Caiaphas was a political survivor. In the 30 years after Caiaphas, there were a collection of 28 high priests. Let me say that again. 28 high priests in the 30 years following Caiaphas. I mean, that's more than, you know, the, uh, the coaches of, uh, of professional soccer teams get replaced and all that. I mean, it's incredibly frequently. But notice, Caiaphas himself, he ruled for almost 20 years. 18 years Caiaphas ruled for. He was an expert political survivor. He knew how to make his way in with the Romans. By the way, it's very interesting, and I found this again in Adam Clark. Adam Clark says that after about two years of Jesus' crucifixion, Caiaphas and Pilate were both deposed by the man who later became the Roman emperor, a man named Vitellius. Now, Caiaphas was unable to bear the disgrace of being deposed from office and, according to Adam Clark, because of the stings of conscience that he suffered for his hand in putting Jesus to death, he killed, committed suicide about A.D. 35 or 36. Now, one other thing to notice about these verses. Did you notice in verse 5? They were agreeing together in the plot to put Jesus to death, but they said, no, we won't do it during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, they were very correct in fearing a riot or uproar from the people. Jerusalem's population grew perhaps five times as large during Passover season. And it was a time of intense religious fervor and sort of a national messianic attitude that could really be lit off at any time by a spark or or by a, a flame that would light the fuse. They were very concerned about this, and they said, no, we don't want to put Jesus to death during the Passover feast. And curiously, they wound up doing exactly that anyway, didn't they? Just as Jesus predicted. Now, this is another subtle indication that Jesus was in complete control of the events. They killed him on the very day they said that they did not want to kill him. Now, leading up to this now, verse 6. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. That's very interesting. We don't know who this man, Simon the leper, was. Otherwise, in the scriptures, he's unknown to us. Presumably, he was a well-known local figure. Probably, we would assume from the name, a man who used to be a leper. And it's not hard for us to think that Jesus was the one who healed him from his leprosy, right? And so we could just imagine a man named Simon, who had been a leper. He's very anxious to entertain Jesus, to bring him into his home, and to invite him to his table. And as Jesus is enjoying this banquet, what a happy occasion it must have been, this woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly, fragrant oil. Now this brings up a bit of a problem. Because there's an event very much like this, mentioned in Mark, in Luke, and in John. And from piecing together the accounts of the four Gospels, it seems that the account in Luke is quite different than the one in Matthew, Mark, and John. It seems that the one in Luke refers to a much earlier anointing that happened not in Bethany, which was right outside of Jerusalem, but instead it happened in Galilee. 
There are similarities between the two, the one in Luke and the one that's mentioned concurrently in Matthew, Mark, and John. But it seems that this is the one described by Matthew, Mark, and John. And John tells us in John chapter 12 that this woman was Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. And Mary was the one who made this very extravagant uh, display of love and devotion to Jesus. She broke this very precious alabaster flask, something that had no handles but a long neck. And when it was broken open, you couldn't unbreak it again. It was just opened once for all time. And it would carry very precious perfume that could be used, of course, as perfume, a perfuming oil, but also was used in burial. You can just imagine the scene, the intensity, how the smell filled the room, how Mary took such loving care and anointed Jesus with it, pouring it out on his head as he sat at the table. But notice, when the disciples saw it, it says they were indignant. And in verse 7, they asked, why this waste? The disciples criticized this display of love and honor for Jesus. And specifically, we know from John chapter 12, the critic was Judas. And Jesus defended Mary as an example of someone who simply did a good work for Jesus. Her extravagant, it was really reckless. It was like somebody taking what would be equivalent to their life savings or their future retirement plan and laying it down at the feet of Jesus in a very loving display. But Jesus said her work would be remembered for as long as the gospel was preached. He even said it would be a memorial to her. What they called waste, Jesus called it a beautiful thing. Some of the disciples didn't like it. Judas didn't like it. It's like everything else smelled like sweet perfume in the room. But to Judas, it smelled bad, didn't it? And they said this, verse 11, you have the poor with you always. Excuse me, Jesus said this. You have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. Please understand, Jesus did not say this to discourage generosity to the poor. That that was the complaint of some of the disciples, right? Well, look, she she did this. She made this extravagant gift to Jesus. And wouldn't it have been better to sell that gift, to give the money to the poor? Wouldn't that have been a more noble, a, a better use of the money? And Jesus says, no, no, it would not have been. This was good. This was appropriate. The poor, you will always have the opportunity to do good for the poor. Please, don't anybody think that Jesus was against doing good for the poor. Not at all. That wasn't the point. What Jesus was saying was the time to honor and to bless and to pour out love for him was now. Now was Mary's opportunity, and she took that opportunity. Matter of fact, you could say is Jesus' recent words about the judgment of the nations had just radically encouraged kindness to those in need. No, but Jesus pointed the appropriate nature of that moment to honor him in a very extravagant way. I like what Spurgeon said about this woman's sacrifice. He said this, that the greatness of it was that it was given all for Jesus. I mean, everybody else could smell the perfume. Everybody else could see what was going on. But Mary didn't do that for anybody else in the house. She didn't even do it for herself. She did it all for for Jesus. The anointing was his only. And in this, Jesus says something very profound in verse 12. He said, she did it for my burial. Now, I wonder if Mary understood the significance of that. Maybe she didn't. Maybe Jesus was the only one who really understood that she did it for his burial. But whether she understood it or not, she gave Jesus the love and the attention he deserved before his great suffering. She understood more, should we say, because she was in the place of greatest understanding. Mary was at the feet of Jesus. She probably didn't know everything that the action meant, but she did show this, that there was one heart in the world that knew that nothing was too good to lay down to Jesus Christ. One person who knew that the very best should be given to him. And so now, think about it. What Mary did smells as sweet in all the world as that perfume that she poured out that day on Jesus' head. And think about this. The name of Judas stinks. But what Mary did and her name stands for all, well, really, all eternity. Because it's recorded in the eternal word of God. 
verse 14. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Now, the sense we get from Matthew, because we don't know if these two events were strictly, you know, sequential. We don't know that Judas ran out from Simon the leper's home and did this. Maybe he did, but certainly Matthew wants to present it to us that way, doesn't he? Matthew wants to present it to us that the offense of Mary giving all to Jesus in this glorious way was more than Judas could bear. And what Judas decided was now is the time that I am going to betray Jesus to the religious leaders who wanted to kill him. So what did he do? Verse 15 says that he went to the religious leaders and he said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? You know, through the centuries, many different people have tried to offer a suggestion, a thought, an idea for what the motive was of Judas in betraying Jesus. Some very interesting speculations have been put forward. For example, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 4, it describes Judas as Judas Iscariot. Now, we don't know exactly what Iscariot means. It may mean that he was from Kerioth, a city in southern Judah. That would make Judas the only one of the 12 disciples that came from Judah and not from Galilee. And it may be that he always felt like he was on the outside. It may be that he felt that, you know, Peter, James, and John, they're the favorites. That the Galilean fishermen, they get all the credit. They get all the closeness to Jesus. I'm the outsider. And maybe it was over sort of those bitter, hurt feelings that prompted him to this kind of betrayal. It's also been suggested that Judas perhaps was disillusioned with the kind of Messiah that Jesus revealed himself to be. Maybe Judas wanted a more political and and militarily conquering Messiah. And he said, well, listen, if Jesus is going to be this meek, mild Messiah who heals lepers and blind men and stuff like that and, and doesn't call down fire upon the Roman armies, that's not the kind of Messiah I want. I'm done with him. That could have been the motive. Some people suggest that Judas watched the ongoing conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders, and he concluded that the religious leaders were winning, and Jesus was losing. And therefore, he decided to cut his losses and join the winning side. He wouldn't be the first person to play that kind of political game. Some people have thought that Judas came to the conclusion that Jesus simply was not the Messiah or a true prophet, even as Saul of Tarsus at that time believed. Some people even suggest that Judas did this from a noble motive, that that the Judas really did love Jesus and really did believe he was the Messiah, but, but Judas simply thought that Jesus was moving too slowly, and he thought, I'll force his hand, I'll force the issue, I'll make Jesus do something bold and dramatic in the face of the religious officials. Yes, now Jesus will come into his Messiahship the way that he should, because I'll force him to do so. I've just put before you, what, five, six suggestions? Can we just look at the text again? Whatever other reasons might have been present, the scriptures present no sense of reluctance in Judas. None. Search the scriptures. Do a word search. Every instance where you find Judas mentioned, you will not find the slightest suggestion that Judas was conflicted or reluctant. And the only motivation that's given to us in the scriptures is greed. Can I read those words to you from verse 15 again? What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? Those are not words of nobility. Those are not words of misguidance. Those are words of greed. And yet it was a very strange kind of greed. Because look at verse 15. And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. Now again, according to the Bible, there was no noble intention in Judas's heart. His motive was simply money, 
and the price wasn't too high. I have to be honest with you. I used to think that 30 pieces of silver was a pretty fair price. You know, pretty, you know, that was a lot of money. 30 pieces of sounds to me like a lot of money. It was a very little money. I, I don't know how you would relate it to today's money. It's very hard. Let, let's just say 20 euros, $25. You see, the exact value of 30 pieces of silver is somewhat difficult to determine today, but it was undeniably a small amount, not a great amount. Scripturally, it's known as the set price for the lowest slave. That's in Exodus chapter 21, verse 31. Matthew Poole says this, Though therefore Judas was covetous enough to have asked for more, and it is like the malice of these counselors that would have edged him to have given more, yet it was thus ordered by the divine counsel, Christ must be sold cheap that it might be more dear to the souls of the redeemed ones. I mean, honestly, couldn't Judas have gotten more? Yes, he could have. I want a hundred pieces of silver. I want three times as much, four times, five times, ten times. The priest would have gladly paid it. But Judas sold Jesus for such a low price to both fulfill Scripture and to reveal what was in the heart of Judas. It was greed, but greed of the basest sort. Greed that would sell somebody out, not even for a large price, which is wicked enough, but to sell him for almost nothing. And then you think about it. You think about it today. You think how many people today sell out Jesus for less than what Judas ever got? How many people sell out Jesus for the sake of a smile from a pretty girl or attention from a handsome man? They will sell out their Savior for that. Listen, that's not even worth 30 pieces of silver. How many people will sell out Jesus because somebody might laugh at them? For the sake of a laugh, for the sake of a sneer, they'll sell out Jesus. And so, yes, it's fine for us to stand back and say, Judas, what a wicked man you are. How cheaply you'll sell the Savior. Oh, but people do the same today. They sell out Jesus very cheaply. Verse 17. Now on the first day of the feast of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and there they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. And this must have been a very moving Passover commemoration for Jesus. Passover remembers the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, which was the central act of redemption in the Old Testament. Whenever in the Old Testament they want to call to mind an act of redemption, God reminds them of the deliverance from Egypt. Now Jesus would provide a new center of redemption, not only for the New Testament, but for the entire Bible. But this mention of the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread brings up complicated issues of precise calendar chronology of these events. The main complicating issues is this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke present this meal Jesus will have as the disciples as the Passover meal. You just read that in verse 17, right? Now, that would normally be eaten with lamb, and that lamb would normally be sacrificed on the day of the Passover with a great ceremony at the temple. Yet John seems to indicate that the meal took place before the Passover. That's in John chapter 13. And that Jesus was actually crucified on the Passover. You say, well, which was it? Some people say that the simplest solution is simply this. That Jesus, knowing that he would be dead before the regular time for the meal, that he deliberately held it in secret one day early. That's possible. 
In Luke chapter 22, it indicates that Jesus had a strong desire to share this meal with his disciples. And so maybe Jesus just had his own special Passover one day early. And for the man, for the man, for the God who instituted Passover, he certainly had the liberty to do so. Now, another solution is suggested by some people. It's the idea that Jesus ate the Passover on Passover day, but on the prior evening. Now, let's remember how the Jews reckon time. In the Jewish mentality, the day begins in darkness. When the sun goes down and you can see a certain number of stars in the sky, it's four or five or something like this. When you can see those numbers of stars in the sky, the day begins. The day begins in darkness and ends in light. That's the Jewish conception. So Jesus may very well have celebrated the Passover with his disciples on the prior evening to the day when the Passover lambs would be killed and eaten. And that would simply mean this, that Jesus would have had a Passover feast with his disciples on the Passover day, but probably not eating lamb as part of the feast. And that's possible. By the way, there is no specific mention of lamb in this Passover meal that Jesus had with his disciples. So that may very well be the case. I would say in my mind, that's the likeliest solution. But let me tell you, when you start getting into the chronological intricacies of this, it can give you a headache very, very fast. And I agree with one commentator who said this. He said the discussions about this chronological analysis are irksome and their results are uncertain. You're likely to take the attention off of the more important matters. So if you have a mind to try to dissect the exact chronology of these events, go ahead. But it's a very complicated issue. And I think it tends to take our mind off of the central thing here. And so it says, when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Verse 20, right? The, the day was beginning, probably that Passover day, and probably the very next afternoon, as those Passover lambs were being slaughtered, Jesus would be being crucified. So the Jewish day began at sundown. Jesus ate the Passover and was killed on that same day, according to the Jewish calendar. And he sat down with the twelve. Judas was there. Verse 21. Now, as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just at his risen of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, You have said it. Now, in the midst of this Passover meal, Jesus made a startling announcement. He told his disciples that one of their own, th these 12 who had lived and heard and learned from Jesus for three years, that one of these 12 would betray him. What a terrible thought to bring to the feast. But if you know anything about a Passover feast, what is part of the Passover feast? Bitter herbs. Well, this is part of the bitter herbs of this Passover feast for them to hear that one of their own would betray Jesus to crucifixion. And listen, if we're familiar with this story, it's very easy for us to not appreciate its impact. It's easy to lose appreciation for how terrible it was for one of Jesus' own to betray him. For very good reason, in Dante, that great Italian poet, his great poem about heaven and hell, it places Judas in the lowest place of hell for his betrayal of Jesus. So what does Jesus say about his betrayer? Verse 23. He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Now Jesus said this not to point out a specific disciple because they had all dipped with him. It was his way of saying somebody at this very table will betray me. But Jesus did identify the betrayer as a friend, someone who ate at the same table with him. The idea is drawn from Psalm 41, verse 9. Listen to this. 
Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. The, the, the man who shares my table, my friend, my, my companion, this is the one who has betrayed me. And in verse 22, each one of the disciples asked, Lord, is it I? Now, might I say, we like to criticize the disciples a lot. We like to uh, poke our fingers at their lack of spirituality. Might I say that this was one of the disciples' finest moments. It, isn't it wonderful that the disciples didn't look around and say, well, I know it's Peter. Or Judas, right? It's Judas, it's Judas. Let's get Judas. Nobody said that. Instead, each one of them, in actually a very godly way, in a moment of self-reflection, asked, Lord, is it I? Is it I? And yet at the end, in verse 25, tells us that Judas himself asked, Rabbi, is it I? This was the height of treachery and hypocrisy. He knew that it was himself, and Jesus knew that it was him, and you can only imagine the look that came between Jesus and Judas at that point. Now, I don't imagine for a moment that that look from Jesus was hatred or, or anger or, or that sort of menacing, dominating look that a man will look another man in the eye with when he says, ooh, I own you, I'm, I'm going to rule over you. No, it's not that at all. But you can be assured that Jesus looked at Judas with the utmost eyes of love, pleading with him to repent, pleading with him not to go. And yet Judas would not be satisfied. Judas did this. Nevertheless, Judas would continue on in his great treachery. So Jesus responds in verse 25. You, he said to Judas, you have said it. He didn't say it to condemn Judas, but to call him to repentance. And it's very fair to say that Jesus said this with love in his eyes. And Judas, excuse me, Jesus showed Judas that he loved him, even knowing the treachery he had planned for him. Verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is the my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Sometime during or after this dinner, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. We find that in John chapter 13. Following this, Judas left. We find that in John chapter 13, verse 30. Then Jesus gave the extended discourse with the disciples and his prayer to God the Father, described in John chapter 13, all the way from verse 31, all the way to the end of chapter 17. A beautiful section, one of the most amazing sections of Scripture, John 13 through 17. And yet, there's a real question here. When Jesus led his disciples in this last supper, in this celebration of communion, the bread and the wine signifying his body and his blood, was Judas present for this? I haven't wanted to look into this issue. I started looking into it in preparation for this study. And I tell you, it's not easy to tell. I'll just be very honest with you. The debate centers around the manuscript of John 13, verse 2. Some textual traditions of John 13, 2 say, and supper being ended, and then it launches on with what Jesus did. Now that would imply that Jesus washed their feet and that Judas left after the institution of the Lord's Supper, because every indication is that Jesus did this while they were eating. Notice it in verse 26, and as they were eating. So if the correct manuscript evidence in John 13, 2 is, and supper being ended, it argues very strongly for Judas being present for the bread and the cup. However, there are other manuscript traditions which also have strength. It's not a clear, cut-and-dry issue, not for my preliminary examination, but these other textual traditions read, and during supper at John 13, 2. And this would indicate that Jesus washed feet and that Jude Judas may have very well left during the meal, 
and therefore may have left before the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, since John in his gospel does not describe the institution of the Lord's Supper, there's debate as to whether or not Judas was present when this was first instituted as described here in this passage in Matthew. I would have to say most confidently state that Judas was not part of the Lord's Supper. G. Campbell Morgan says, before the new feast was instituted, John, excuse me, Judas had gone out. Now, God bless G. Campbell Morgan. And who am I to question a great man of God like that? But I will say it's very difficult to determine this with certainty. What we can determine is contained in verse 26. Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it. When the bread was lifted up at Passover, this is what the head of the meal would say. He would say, This is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needed come and eat the Passover meal. And everything at the Passover meal had a symbolic meaning. That the bitter herbs recalled the bitterness of slavery. That the salt water reminded them of the tears shed under Egypt's oppression. That the main course of the meal, a a lamb freshly sacrificed for that particular household, it didn't symbolize anything connected to the agonies of Egypt. It was the sin-bearing sacrifice that allowed the judgment of God to pass over the household that believed upon it. Now in the midst of this, Jesus doesn't follow the normal Passover ritual. Or at least, if he said the normal Passover Haggadah, or ritual, he added to it these words that are nowhere found in the normal Passover ritual. He said, take, eat, this is my body. This is my blood of the new covenant. At this point, Jesus didn't give the normal explanation of the meaning of each of the foods. He reinterpreted them in himself. And the focus was no longer on the suffering of Israel in Egypt, but the focus was now on the sin-bearing suffering of Jesus on their behalf. Those words, this is my body, they have no place at the Passover ceremony. And as something that was brand new, as an innovation, as D.A. Carson called them, it must have had a stunning effect. And it must have been something that really stuck in the minds and the hearts of the disciples. Can I say, this is how we remember what Jesus did for us. As we eat the bread, we should remember how Jesus was broken and pierced and beaten with stripes for our redemption. As we drink the cup, we should remember that His blood, His life was poured out upon Calvary for us. And how good God is. How good God is to give us these tangible things, something you can hold, something you can taste, something you can feel something you can smell, something that has texture, something that will speak to us about what Jesus did for us on the cross. Oh, it's more than how we remember what Jesus did for us. It's also how we have fellowship with Jesus. Because of his redemption that reconciled us to God, we can now sit down to a meal with Jesus and we can enjoy each other's company. You know what it's like when we have this this communion, when we share the bread and the cup amongst one another. It's like Jesus is there with us. And in the midst of all of this, remarkably, stunningly, Jesus announced the institution of a new covenant. Again, I'm often, when I think about it, with sort of a clean mind, the, the, the boldness of Jesus. Oh, if he was not who he said he was, if he was not God the Son, if he was not the Messiah of Israel, what arrogance for a man to sit at a dinner and announce, here, I'm instituting the new covenant. But he was. He was who he said he was. And he was able to do what he said he could do. No mere man could ever institute a new covenant between God and man. But Jesus is the God-man who had the authority to establish this new covenant, sealed with blood, even as the old covenant was sealed with blood. The new covenant is an essential Old Testament concept. It concerns an inner transformation that cleanses us from sin. Jeremiah 31, 34 says this, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's part of the new covenant. 
And this transformation that happens under the new covenant, it puts God's word and God's will in us. Jeremiah 31, 34 says this, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. And this covenant is all about a new, close relationship with God. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we can have a new covenant relationship with God. And it's very sorry to say that many people who consider themselves followers of Jesus Christ, they live as if it never happened. They live as if there's no inner transformation. They live as if there's no true cleansing from sin. They live as if there's no word of God and will of God written upon their hearts. And they live as if there's no new close and relationship with God. So how significant it was when Jesus says in verse 26, this is my body, and in verse 28, this is my blood. Now I need to talk about this, don't I? About how the fact that the precise understanding of these words from Jesus have been the source of great theological controversy among Christians. Tremendous. The Roman Catholic Church holds the idea of transubstantiation, which teaches, and I hope I'm stating it fairly, that the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus. And so, during the ceremony of the Mass, when in the Roman Catholic theology, which I'll tell you right now, I believe to be gravely incorrect, They believe that that wafer, that bread wafer that the priest holds, that it actually becomes the body of Jesus. And that it actually becomes his blood within that cup. And therefore, they're very careful. They're very careful. By tradition, now this has changed in recent years, somewhat in some places, but by tradition, a Roman Catholic priest would never give that wafer to a person to hold and put into their own mouth. What if they dropped it? What if they dropped it and it got smudged on or stepped on and the body of Christ was trampled underfoot? No, no, no. The priest would lay it in the person's mouth without allowing them to touch it. And the Roman Catholic priest as well would not allow the lay person to drink from the cup. Because what if the lay person should, you know, spit or gurgle or do something funny when they're drinking and some of the blood of Jesus is dripping down their face or or lands on the ground, God forbid. And so they would withhold the cup from the laity because they believed that that bread was actually the body of Christ and in that cup was the actual blood of Jesus Christ. Now Martin Luther, the great German reformer, he held the idea of consubstantiation which teaches that the bread remains bread and the wine remains wine, but by faith they are actually the same as Jesus' actual body. Now Luther did not believe in the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, but he didn't go very far from it. John Calvin taught that Jesus' presence in the bread and the wine is real, but it's spiritually real, not physically real. Now, Zwingli, before Calvin, but actually Calvin taught very much the same thing that Zwingli taught. Zwingli taught that the bread and the wine are significant symbols that represent the body and blood of Jesus. When the Swiss reformers debated the issue with Martin Luther at Marburg, not very far from here, It's the famous colloquy at Marburg, where where Martin Luther got together with the Swiss reformers, noted, uh, headed by the notable reformer uh, uh, Ulrich Zwingli. They got together there at Marburg, and there they were discussing this. They discussed doctrine after doctrine. They agreed on almost everything, but when they got to the issue of discussing what the nature of the bread and the cup in communion was, well, there was a huge contention. Luther insisted on some kind of physical presence because Jesus said, this is my body. He insisted it over and over again, supposedly riding on the velvet of the table, hoc est corpus meum, in Latin, this is my body. Zwingli replied, listen, Martin, dear brother, Jesus also said, I am the vine and I am the door. And we understand what he was saying. Luther replied, 
I don't know, but if Christ told me to eat dung, I would do it, knowing that it was good for me. And Luther was so strong on this because he thought that it was an issue of believing what Jesus said, and because he thought that Zwingli was compromising on this point. Matter of fact, he said that he thought that Zwingli was of another spirit, just based on this issue. And they parted this otherwise beautiful meeting in great acrimony. Ironically, later, Luther read Calvin's writings on the Lord's Supper, which were essentially the same as Zwingli's, and he seemed to agree with or at least accept Calvin's views. Now, scripturally, we can understand that the bread and the cup are not mere symbols, but they are powerful pictures to partake of, to enter into as we see the Lord's table as the new Passover. But friends, I don't think anybody can deny the symbolic character of these things. Look what Jesus said. He held a cup before them, and he said, This cup is the blood of my new covenant. Now, friends, right there, undeniably, Jesus is speaking in symbols. The cup was not drink, uh, drunken, drink, drink, swallowed, whatever you want to say, right? You can't drink a cup. You only drink what's in it. Jesus was using cup as a symbol for what was in the cup, right? When you say to somebody, drink this cup, you don't actually mean for them to drink the cup. That's impossible. What am I supposed to do? Melt down the cup to liquid metal and then drink it? Is that what he wants me to do? No. You understand, the cup is used as a symbol. The cup was used as a symbol for the wine that was within it and for the new covenant that that wine represented. I don't know why we should not as easily acknowledge a symbol or a figure in the words, this is my body. What is certain is this. Jesus told us to commemorate, to remember something, not his birth, not his life, not even his miracles, but he told us to commemorate his death. This is the center of what Jesus came to accomplish. And so he says in verse 26, take, eat. We can't get so caught up in debating what the bread and the cup mean that we forget to do what Jesus said to do with them. you got to take them and eat them. Listen, I don't care if you have all the theology down perfectly. You know exactly the nature of the bread and precisely the nature of the cup. It doesn't matter if your theological precision is correct if you fail to take and eat. Take means that it won't be forced upon anyone, right? Jesus isn't holding anybody down and forcing them to eat of him. No. Take means that you must actually receive it. And eat, eat, means that it is absolutely vital for everyone. Without food and drink, no one can live. Without Jesus, we perish. It means that we must take Jesus into our innermost being. Now, friends, the Passover created a nation. A mob of slaves was freed from Egypt and became a nation. And the new Passover also created a people. Those united in Jesus Christ, remembering and trusting his sacrifice for us. And it tells us something. It tells us. It tells us something that in verse 27, it says that Jesus gave thanks. That almost seems out of place. This bread, this is going to be my crucified, broken, bruised, pierced, dead body for you. This cup, this cup is a picture, is a figure of my blood. My blood is going to be poured out unto death in not quite 24 hours. And what does it say in verse 27? It says, he gave thanks. By the way, in the ancient Greek language, thanks there is the word Eucharist. And that's why the commemoration of the Lord's table is sometimes called the Eucharist. It just means giving of thanks. But don't you find it remarkable that Jesus could give thanks on such an occasion? That, that he wasn't just trembling and weeping and so sorrowful that he couldn't do anything? 
It tells us something of Jesus' own attitude and heart at the moment. Jesus was in the mood and he was able at that moment to thank and praise God. He, He was confident that God would do his work. Now later on in Gethsemane, which we'll take a look at next week, there he only submits. But here he submits and he gives thanks. It tells us something also of our own receiving of the Lord's Supper. I like what F.B. Meyer said. Let me read this to you. What then do we mean when at the supper we lift that sacred cup to our lips? Are we not saying by that significant act, remember thy covenant? Are we not reminding Jesus that we are relying upon him to do his part? Are we not pledging ourselves to him as his own, bound to him as if by indissoluble ties and satisfied with his most blessed service? This also tells us something of the sometimes declined condition of the people of God and their leaders. When Jesus held that cup up before his disciples, what do you think that cup was made of? A fine gold chalice encrusted with jewels. It was probably a simple wooden or clay cup. One man said this, it's recorded in, Our friend John Trapp, the Puritan commentator, he says, Once there were wooden cups and golden priests. Now there are golden cups and wooden priests. One more thing about this before we conclude with verse 30. Look at what verse 29 says. He says, Until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Please notice, this Lord's table, the commemoration of the bread and the cup, not only did it look forward to Jesus' crucifixion, which would happen the very next day, but it also looked forward to the consummation of all things when Jesus shared the messianic banquet with his people. He looked forward to a future celebration of the Passover in heaven, one that has not yet been celebrated with his people. He's waiting for all his people to be gathered together with him, and then there will be a great supper. Revelation 19 calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb, and this is the fulfillment of my Father's kingdom that Jesus longed for. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Looking ahead not only to the next 24 hours, but looking down the corridors of time to the fulfillment of all things and that great messianic banquet. Well, we're not even halfway through the chapter, but let's conclude with verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. We don't often think of Jesus singing, but he did. He lifted his voice in adoration and worship to God the Father. Now we can sort of endlessly wonder what his voice sounded like. But you can be sure of this. Jesus, when he sang, he sang with more than his voice. He put his whole heart up to God in praise. And this reminds us that God wants to be praised with singing. Oh, we're not trying to say for a moment that singing encompasses all of praise. Not for a moment. There are many ways you can praise God, but singing is one that is especially dear to him and might I say approved of by Jesus himself. It's a wonderful picture. They sing. And I don't know, can you imagine that anyone else led the singing other than Jesus? It's remarkable to think that Jesus could sing on this night before his crucifixion. Could could we sing in such circumstances? Jesus can truly be our worship leader here. We can sing to God the Father just as Jesus did because this is something that pleases him. And when we love somebody, we want to do the things that please them. And it really doesn't matter if at the moment it pleases us or not. G. Campbell Morgan said this, No sweeter singing, no mightier music ever sounded amid the darkness of the sad world's night than the song of Jesus and his first disciples as they moved out to the cross of his passion and their redemption. You know, it says here that Jesus sung a hymn. What did he sing? Well, you know, a Passover meal always ended with singing of three psalms known as 
the Hallel. Psalm 116, 117, and 118. And I'm just going to read to you a few lines from those psalms. And I want you to think of how these psalms would have sounded in Jesus' ears as he sung them. Are you ready? Jesus sang these words on his way to Gethsemane. I'm not going to quote the chapter and verse. This is from Psalm 116, 117, and 118. Ready? The pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. For you have delivered my soul from death my eyes from tears and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I will take up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. You pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. How about this one? I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. Or this one. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And then finally, oh, finally. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Can you imagine what it was like for Jesus to sing those words on the night he would be arrested and tried and before the day he would be crucified. When Jesus arose to Gethsemane, these words from Psalm 116, 117, 118 were on his lips. He trusted in God's word. And so do we. We trust in this word that describes what Jesus did to save us. And I don't know. You know, we oftentimes talk at the end of a message about application, and it's very true. We need to apply the Word of God to our lives. Let me just suggest to you, the foremost application that you can have from a passage deeply meditating upon Jesus, there, there is Jesus betrayed by Judas. There is Jesus adored by Mary. There is Jesus eating Passover with his disciples. There is Jesus instituting a new covenant marked by the bread and the wine. And there is Jesus singing these songs, these beautiful songs of trust and commitment and confidence to the Lord, even in the face of death. The greatest application we can have is simply to put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to praise him for such a marvelous work on our behalf. So, Father, that's what we want to do. You know, Lord, right now, in just the quietness of prayer, we come before your throne and we just say, Lord, Lord, we adore you. We think of how the tears must have streamed down your face as you sang those words, as you sang those words full of confidence in the Lord and full of confidence in life and full of confidence in the fact that you would be bound with cords to the altar. Lord, we think of the greatness of your saving work. 
And we say, hallelujah. We say, thank you, Jesus. And we say, Lord, forgive our unbelief. (laughs) Forgive every moment when we've doubted your love for us. Lord, when we think that you did this with us in mind, how could we ever doubt your love? How could we ever doubt your shepherdly care for us? We praise you, you great, magnificent God. Thank you for being our Savior and for going to such lengths to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.